So I will start, uh, I want to start this passage of the transfiguration. We're going to start in um, Matthew 16, 21 and go through chapter 17, verse 8. Matthew 16, 21 to 17, verse 8. I want to start by talking about how, an, an example of how our Washington state governor communicates with state employees. Every time something awful happens in the world or in the country, better, the country, uh, Governor Inslee sends an email that he or a staffer writes to all state employees, and I'm a state employee. So I get this email at work every time something happens a day or two later, bam, Jay has emailed me personally. And it always opens with this, dear fellow state employee, and then it talks about whatever it is and how Washington is leading the way to make sure that doesn't happen here, and et cetera, et cetera. But he tries to, sometimes he signs it Jay, uh, and so he's trying to be really intimate and familiar, like we're friends and we're all so humble civil servants and we're all working together to fight injustice and to make the world a better place. And how in Washington, we're, we're trying to make sure that bad thing doesn't happen here. And here's a link to this initiative and that initiative and stuff like that. But there's this um, fake kind of intimacy or solidarity um, a few people, even though he tries, he tries to be a little warm, as though we know each other. But no one would, no one who gets this letter, hardly anyone would think that this is the letter from a friend who actually knows you, right? It's distant, it's remote, it's this note on high from a guy I'll never see about you know shared values and a lot of bland language. It's not like a letter written from someone who you know and can actually talk to you and uh, from a friend. It's, it's not that, it's cold and really impersonal, even though it tries to not be. I mean, Jay Inslee doesn't know who I am and he doesn't care. I don't hold it against him. He doesn't need to care who I am, um, but he sends me emails anyway whenever something awful happens. My point is that Jesus is not like that. The gulf between me and Jay Inslee as a lowly manager in the Washington management system, me and Jay Inslee, um, is infinitely less than the gap between me as just a normal Christian and Jesus as our king. Huge gap between Jay and I, there's like this much comparatively. But yet, if you belong to Jesus, your relationship with him is infinitely, should be, can be, infinitely closer than the relationship that Jay Inslee has with me. And it's that, that paradox, and it's hard to maintain. How can we have a personal relationship with our king without it becoming remote, where he's way up there and I'm way down here, either becoming just too remote because he's God, or too familiar till we, we forget who we're actually talking to? And so in this passage, the Transfiguration, we see Jesus wanting to establish really clearly who he actually is because of something that Peter says to him. And we can learn something from that that we can do something with today, and that's what I want us to see. I want us to see who on earth God is. Uh, and when Jesus communicates with us, when our relationship with God is more than an email, my relationship with Jay Inslee is an email. He sends me emails, I delete them. That's the relationship. Sometimes I read them. No offense to Jay. If I sent him one, he'd probably do the same thing. So my point is, I want us to see how our relationship with God is infinitely different, infinitely closer than 
our other relationships with distant people in our lives who are authorities over us. So we'll be in Matthew 16, 21 through 17, 8. And this is not uh, like an abstract thing. This is very personal about your relationship with Jesus and the kind of relationship he wants to have with you. And as we go through this passage, I hope that we'll see that and it'll impact um, what you think about your role and your relationship with Jesus and what you should be doing in your Christian life today. We're going to go through the passage and then we'll talk about what it means. So two stages and then we'll be done with our worship service for today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Help us to catch a glimpse, to be reminded of who you are, and help us also to know that if we belong to you, you're close and you're not distant and you're there and you care about us personally and individually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here we are, Matthew 16, 21. This is right after... Peter has confessed who Jesus is. Jesus says, who, who do people say I am? And people are, some people are like, well, Elijah or John the Baptist back from the dead. There's all kinds of stuff going out there. And Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you think that I am? And Peter famously says in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, you're right. Give the guy a cookie. You're right. And now, after, the, after Simon confesses that he, he and other people, other, everyone else there, acknowledges that you are the Messiah, what does, what does Jesus want to tell them? So we're going to start in Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So ever since Peter made that confession, Jesus starts pushing and saying, you know, I know you believe that and it's true. Now I want to tell you something else that you, you don't want to hear. He began to explain many things uh, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law. The elders meaning like the, the teachers, the pastors, the chief priests. How many chief priests are there supposed to be at one time from the Old Testament? One or 50? How many? One. But now there's several. Things are all messed up in, in Jerusalem at this time. The chief priests, it's only supposed to be one. But anyway, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, the scribes, the scholars, um, all of them, they're going to reject him and they're going to kill him. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He's trying to warn them about I am the Messiah, but this is what is in store for me when we go to Jerusalem. The reason why we talk about things in the Christian calendar is when is Easter? Six weeks? The Transfiguration is the year before the last Passover of Jesus' life. So we're talking 13 months until, so if this were real time, the Transfiguration would be today, and it's Crucifix, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, Easter, all of that is about 12 and a half months away. So that's why when we talk about events in the Christian calendar, we can start slotting them into a, to an order, 13 months away-ish from his, from his crucifixion and death. He's trying to tell them and warn them what's coming. And Peter is shocked. How could the Messiah die? He's angry. Peter always says things that we often think. He doesn't have a lot of tact. 
And that's fine, because some of us don't. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to criticize him, tell him he's wrong. Um, he doesn't just say the words on the screen, never, this shall never happen to you. He says it over and over in various different ways. He's, he's criticizing, he's rebuking Jesus like they're equals. Not in a mean way, but in a, that's ridiculous, it can't happen. No, you're wrong, sort of a very familiar sort of way, like they're friends, and Jesus is a good friend who has gotten a bit mixed up. But that's the tone that Peter, that Peter uses. Never, this shall never happen to you. It's the strongest way that he could say, no, this isn't going to happen. He's, he couldn't say it any stronger. There's no way in earth this can ever happen to you. How could it happen to you? Jesus has become so familiar to Peter that he feels comfortable actually rebuking him and correcting him. So to Peter, he, he's just said you're the Messiah, but somehow that's become sort of abstract because he can, he can feel he can actually argue with Jesus like they're equals, like he's a friend who's gone off the rails and needs to be you know, brought back to reality. I'm sure Peter agrees here that Jesus is God, but it, it's like absent from his mind at this point because he's so, Jesus is so familiar, so close. He's forgotten who Jesus actually is, or he never would say that kind of thing. Moses didn't talk to God like that because all God revealed him, the passage we read this morning earlier, God just revealed himself to Moses as infinitely high, holy, glowing, bright, the distance was so much that Moses never forgot who he was and who God was. He might have gotten mad at the Israelites, but he never got, spoke to God in a, very, in a familiar sort of way. But Jesus is God in human flesh, and Peter seems to have forgotten who he actually is. So he's so comfortable, he begins to rebuke the Messiah. And Jesus' reaction is a really human reaction, because he is God, but he's also a person. He became a person. And he has real um, emotions and, and fears. Think of the Garden of, of Gethsemane. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. What does that mean? It means that what he's saying is like a, a tempting trap. Have you ever had a friend or someone who you thought was a friend who tried to convince you to do something you know you shouldn't do and it sounded good but you knew you shouldn't do it because it's terrible advice but you're tempted to do it anyway? That's what Jesus means when as a person, as a representative person, he says, you've become a stumbling block to me. Shut up. Stop saying these things to me. He doesn't want to die. As a person, he doesn't want to die. In the Garden of Gethsemane, did he seem eager to die? Of course, he's going to because he's obedient, perfectly obedient to the Father like we can't be. But he is a person. He doesn't want to die. And so when Peter is saying, no, there's a different way, Jesus says, shut up with that. I don't want to hear that. It sounds good to me to find another way. Stop talking about that. I need to stay focused on what the Father sent me here to do. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Meaning, your mind isn't fixed on what God wants. Your mind is fixed on what you want. Even though it sounds really good that the Messiah shouldn't die. I mean, that, that sounds like a good idea. It sounds good, but God's plan is different. 
And Jesus says, stop talking about this. Stop it. It's tempting to me. You're a stumbling block to me. And so Jesus says this. this that's the problem. He's trying to tell them what's coming. Peter talks to him in this overly familiar way. He doesn't accept it, doesn't want to accept it. And so Jesus tells them this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I'm not going to talk about those verses. I'll let them stand on their own because Jesus' words are pretty clear. But they mean what they say. Jesus wants us to give ourselves to him fully and totally as our king and do what he wants us to do. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what they've done. He's talking about one day, he's going to come back, gather all of his people, punish the wicked, reward the righteous, and then everything will be the way it should. But this is his point. If you're going to serve God with your life, then you need to remember that you're dealing with God and not just a good friend. Peter seems to have forgotten that he's talking to God. He's talking to God the Son. And if God the Son tells you something, you don't rebuke him and argue with him. So Peter knows who Jesus is, but he seems to have practically forgotten it all. Jesus, seem, Jesus as God seems to become this abstract thing, this idea that's not, that's not real anymore. If this is true, that you need to give yourself to him, knowing that one day he's going to come back and gather his people and reward them according to what they've done, you need to really believe you need to listen to him. I mean, really believe you need to listen to him. And Peter and perhaps some of the others seem to have forgotten who he actually is. Not in their mind, but in their heart, in real life. And he says, truly I say to you, some, stand, some who are here standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom, the, the beginning part of my kingdom is going to come before some of you even pass away at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out and people have miraculous abilities and supernatural gifts and all of these signs are coming to pass, like Joel said in Joel chapter 2, all of these things are coming to pass. Listen to me, do what I say, persevere through whatever's coming because that's what you're supposed to do. And he says all of that, but... In the Transfiguration, he addresses the problem of they seem to have forgotten who he actually is, or they just don't realize really who he actually is who's telling them these things. So what's the purpose of the Transfiguration? Why do we care about the Transfiguration? Why, after this conversation, six days later, did Jesus lead three of them up on top of the mountain, including Peter, and transform himself before them? Why is this such an important event? In the transfiguration, Jesus is telling us, this is who I really am. Now, are you, are you ready to listen to what I have to say without arguing? Now, will you do what I say? Will you give yourself to me as your king? Will you actually do that? Do we really believe that Jesus is our king? If you're a Christian, you'll say yes. 
because you're supposed to. Peter would have said yes too. But he didn't seem to actually, it hadn't sunk into reality in this moment because he's arguing with him. We say Jesus is our king if you're a Christian. His, we, if I say, you know, are his values and his ethics and his agenda, is that your agenda? We'd say, yes. Okay, is it? That's what Jesus wants to emphasize. This is who I am. Now will you listen to me? Are we on board with that? Or is it just theory? To Peter, it become theory. That's why he felt comfortable enough to argue with him. So now, some sort of some sort of demonstration is called for to show Peter and everyone else and us, this is who I actually am. So when I tell you, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. If I tell you that to persevere, Pete, the world will hate you. I love you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. When he says all these things, you'll be willing to go through all of them if you really believe that he's God. Not just in your head, but actually in your heart. So that's why he shows us himself, like pulls the veil back. So we can really see who he is in Acts chapter Acts, uh, Matthew chapter 17. So here it is. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. This is most likely the area where the transfiguration happened. Caesarea Philippi is here with the rem remnants of it in the bottom of your screen. Mount Hermon is this big mountain range um, that Caesarea Philippi sits at, at the foothills of. It's north, a little bit northeast, north-northeast of the, um, it's north of the Sea of Galilee, way off to the north-northeast. So you have all these, this huge, this mountain range, the trans this is like 9,000 feet tall. I don't think they hiked up 9,000 feet. Most people believe that somewhere in the foothills, a little ways up, is where the transfiguration event happened on the foothills of Mount Hermon. So he took those three, Peter, James, and John, he led them up in the hills by themselves. He wants them to really get something important because of how the conversation went six days before. He wants them to know who he is. He wants them to give themselves for him. He wants them to be willing to pick up their cross and die to themselves for him. And if you're gonna do that, they really need to know who he actually is, for real. And there, verse 2, he was transfigured before them, which means he's changed. The word, it's, it's where we get the word, we metamorphosized. He changed like a caterpillar changes into uh, a butterfly. He changed. He totally changed. It's as though the, it's as though the veil that had um, cloaked his, his eternal deity, he took it away so that we could actually see, so they could see who he actually is in his eternal form before he took on flesh and was born of a woman to be a representative person for us. There he was transfigured before them. And if you remember Exodus 33 that I read, now think about this. His face shone like the sun. Can't even look at him. They can't look at him. It's so bright. His clothes became as white as the light. He completely changed in an instant. Now they can't even look at him. He is now how he actually is in eternity. And that's who Peter's arguing with. 
That's who is telling us we need to be holy as he is holy. That's who's telling us we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's who's telling us, who told the lawyer in Mark 12, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not a suggestion from a friend. It's, it's, a, it's an order from God who came all the way here to be a normal person in our place and who reveals himself to us as a normal person. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Why them? Why do you guys think Moses and Elijah appear talking to Jesus? Why not Daniel? Why not Amos? Why not Habakkuk? Why not? Why them? Why these two guys? Moses, the guy who brought the law, the founder of the law, God gave it to him. He's the, the biggest, the, the, the guy who founded the law. It's the law of Moses. And then the most preeminent reforming prophet in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of prophets, but he, Elijah, is the, the biggest, um, most spectacular prophet in the Old Testament. He's trying to get people to reform, to, to change their ways. Uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel with the, pagan, the pagans and the, the demonstration at the altar. Um, Elijah, the, the biggest reforming prophet who tried to tell people to change their hearts and lives and commit to God for real, not just for fake. And Moses, the one who gave the law. All of them, and they're there talking with Jesus, and it's as though... For Peter, James, and John's benefit, that they're talking with him and they're passing the torch along to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of it. All of it. It's as though they're those two penultimate guys from the Old Testament are there telling Peter, James, and John as they're watching. He turns completely white, as bright as the sun, and then they see Moses and Elijah talking with him. It's as though they're telling Peter, James, and John, this is the guy. We bow down to him. He's the one everything's been pointing to. You've got to do what he says. Do you know, who, do you know who, who you're dealing with? Do you know who's telling you to follow him? Do you know who's telling you he's going to be betrayed and killed? Do you know who you're supposed to be following? Not us, him. We are passing the baton to him. Who's the fulfillment of everything we ever talked about? And this is the critical part. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Think if the more you know the Old Testament, the more you can appreciate what happened here in this verse on your screen. Almost everything here points right back to some amazing event from the Old Testament, and it does it on purpose. Where in the Old Testament do we see a bright cloud descending from heaven? What does that mean in the Old Testament? It's God's presence. Presence filled the tabernacle, filled the, the, the temple. It means God is present in this glowing cloud. Who, 
When God passed by Moses in Exodus 32 and 33, when Moses said, can I see your glory? And God passed by Moses. What form did he take when he passed by Moses so Moses could see him? Cloud. Every single thing in this verse is pointing towards something from the Old Testament on purpose. The more you know the Old Testament, the more you can spot and, and think about God is saying a lot of things here. So you have the bright cloud, God's physical presence. God is now there on the mountain with them, which means they really need to hear. We really need to hear what he's about to say. A voice calls out from a cloud. Where does God's voice, where in the Old Testament do we see associated with a cloud, God's voice boom out from the cloud for the benefit of people listening? At Mount Sinai, cloud descended, God's voice boomed from out of the cloud. Moses is the one who goes up and responds. God is there. Now God is going to speak. He says, this is my son. What psalm, in what psalm does God call Jesus his son? Psalm 2. A bunch of places, but Psalm 2. This is my son, today I've begotten you. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This is God speaking to them physically. He descends from heaven to speak to them physically right there. Personally. That means what he has to say is kind of important. He wants, them, he wants it to be burned into their memories. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, it was burned into his memory, and he tells us about it. He says, we are eyewitnesses of his majesty, because he was there. This is my son, whom I love, or in whom I delight. That's from Isaiah 42, verse 1, one of the passages about, one of the prophecies about the Messiah. And he talked there about, here's my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, with whom I'm well pleased. That's the same thing. Where, this is a trickier one, where in the Old Testament does it talk about a special prophet who's going to come, who all the people who love God have to listen to. They have to listen to him. Where does it talk about that? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, you know, one day a special prophet's going to come. He's going to be like me. And in Exodus 32, it says Moses spoke to God face to face. That's how close their relationship is. Not like Daniel. God spoke to Daniel through strange visions. God spoke to Amos through different ways, but with Moses, he spoke face to face. Moses says, a prophet's going to come from among you. He's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be like me with that kind of close relationship. And when he comes, you got to listen to him. Do what he says. He's got a message you need to hear. And here we have God descending in a cloud, speaking from the cloud to Peter, James, and John. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is the guy that Moses talked about. I'm here personally telling you this is the guy. Peter just said he knew it was the guy, but he doesn't really know he's the guy. It's in his head. It hadn't sunk into his heart yet. Or it hadn't for that few moments during that conversation. Every single thing in Scripture, the law, Mo, the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, what happened at Mount Sinai, all of it fades in the shadow of Jesus. 
all doctrine, all scripture, all of God's stories like this divine finger, all pointing to Jesus. All God's promises, Paul said, find their yes in him. And it's so easy to read this and just skim by it, but I just want us to see that God spoke, came here and spoke directly to those three guys and to us because he wants us to really get who his son is. Listen to him. Hear him. Listen. Do what he says. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified because they know what all of this means. They know what it means when a bright shining cloud appears. They've read the Old Covenant scriptures. And God speaks from the cloud, quoting Psalm 7, quoting Isaiah 42, um, quoting Deuteronomy. They know what is happening, and they're terrified. They throw themselves to the ground. But, and this is where we're going to stop and talk about what does this mean for your life. Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. After showing them all of this on purpose, transformed himself so he was who he actually is, they saw him as he really is. God speaks from the cloud, terrified. He did that on purpose, but then he goes and tells them, don't be afraid. Why shouldn't they be afraid? But he goes up, and he doesn't just say, get up. He goes up and puts his hand on their shoulder and says, get up, don't be afraid. Why does Jesus tell them to not be afraid if he just deliberately spent time overawing them to show him that he's God? That is how I want us to transition to, well, what am I supposed to do with this today? Jesus wants us to know who he really, really is. He isn't a smart dead guy, the original title that I wisely got rid of. He's God. And so as we think about this, as you think about the transfiguration, as you think about God, he could, but he's not going to physically recreate this event for every single Christian who ever lived. But he can preserve it so we can read about it. So we can listen to it on our Bible audio thing when we drive to work or when we're at the gym. So when we read or hear this passage, and now we see, yes, yes, that means Jesus is God. Do we hear him? Listen to him. How many of you have your, your, your spouse tries to tell you something and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then later it turns out you weren't actually listening to anything that she actually said. Like, Were you even listening to me? Of course I was. What did you say? You know, so uh, actually hear. Are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you hearing what God is saying in Scripture? Not simply hear, but in, as you read Scripture, do you hear God when you read Scripture? Or is it more like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Tyler, you need to do this. Yep, I'm going to do it. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Is, is, are we, do we hear? And do we listen to listen means to, to take notice and then do something. You know, you tell your kid, go do, do, take out the trash. Okay, they weren't listening. Didn't the trash get, get, didn't get taken out. You didn't listen. Take notice and do something. What he's saying is Peter acknowledges you are the Messiah. And it's true and he meant it. But 
He seemed to have forgotten that. A few seconds later when Jesus said, okay, now that that's out of the way, I'm going to be betrayed by all the most trusted leaders who you've been taught all your life have the truth and can show you the truth and shepherd you in the truth. They're all going to reject me and kill me. And then I'll rise again after three days. And then Peter, instead of saying, whatever your will is, God, I don't know what that means, but I'd like, uh, I believe you. Instead, Peter's like, no, that's ridiculous. Over and over. No, no, no. Absurd. Are we listening to him? He wants us to go beyond this rote, Jesus is God, Jesus is King. I agree. Do we, are we listening to him? The Bible tells us to example. The Bible tells us expect opposition. We say, got it, we understand. And then all sorts of crazy stuff happens in society and we're tempted to become really angry and outraged. Well, what did you expect? Do you expect the world to be Christian? Do you expect the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress to be a Christian place? What world are we living in? Of course it's not. So why should you be surprised at all the weird stuff that come, that, that's going on in our society? Didn't Jesus tell you to expect to be weird and considered weird? There's a difference between saying, got it, and I expected that because I was listening. He wants us to be honest but compassionate people. We saw that last week in the parable of the coin and the lost sheep. So why do so many of us recoil from the very folks who are the most confused and the most lost if he told us to expect to be, to, to be compassionate evangelists? We're told, be holy like he's holy, and we're like, yes, got it. But then we do nothing to try and make that real. It's a rote acknowledgement. Be holy as I am holy. Yep, I understand. Yep, yep. It's... Not listening. He wants us to listen. Listen. He's basically saying, I'm God. You have to listen to me. I mean, I mean he's, like, he's like, do you know who I am? That's sort of the, like, really? You're arguing with me? I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm telling you. Jesus is saying to Peter and to all of us, you know, I'm I'm not just a friend you can argue with on the phone. That's not how this relationship works. We're not, I'm not running off the rails and we're not equals. Listen to me. God spoke audibly in their presence. Listen to this guy. Listen to this guy. So now I come back to the question I asked in verse 7. Why, after showing them what he did, does Jesus, it's intended to terrify them, this is who we're talking to. This is who the Messiah really is. But then he goes up and says, don't be afraid. Get up even. Get up in my presence of God and don't be afraid. Doesn't seem to make sense. Shouldn't he want them? He should, be, he should want them to be like, that's right. Listen to me and be quiet. No, he's like, get up. Don't be afraid. Why? And this is the conundrum part. Even as Jesus wants us to know who he really, really is, he doesn't want to be distant. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be a God who communicates through email like Jay Inslee communicates with me. He doesn't want to be distant. He wants to be close, but he doesn't want us to forget who he actually is. He doesn't sacrifice closeness for majesty. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it says this. Jesus is, uh, the writer of Hebrews, who I call Fred, is describing something about Jesus, and he says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, 
should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So pay attention to this part on the screen. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. After all of that, transforming himself, God descending, speaking, terrifying them, Jesus goes up and he says, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Get up. Jesus is God. But if you're a Christian, he's also your brother. He's also your brother. That's one of the reasons why God reveals himself as father, so we can get the family the family analogy that he wants us to see about us and about him. God the Father, caring, loving, forgiving, disciplined, but caring and forgiving. And if Jesus is the eternal son, and when we become Christians, we're, we're adopted into the family, what's that mean about us and Jesus in this analogy? We're brothers and sisters. Jesus is our brother. That's what he's trying to get across with these, these analogy of these names, father and son. That's powerful. Brothers are not supposed to be distant, cold, cruel. He cares. Get up. Don't be afraid. In Jesus, he says, and through John 14 through 16, he's, if you're a Christian, he's God has come near to us instead of being far and distant, hidden behind curtains. Now he's come into our very hearts within us. He is God, and we do need to listen to him, which is what God's point was. But once we get that, the reason why Jesus goes up and says, don't be afraid, is because he's not the distant God, right? The icy God, the abstract God. He's not the governor who pretends to know you through email. Hello, fellow state worker. That's not how God is. He's not distant. I don't know Jay. Jay doesn't know me, and Jay doesn't care, and I don't blame him. But Jesus knows me. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows all of his children. He's the infinite God who's close, who's there, who is our brother. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is teaching a huge crowd of people, his mother and his brothers come to fetch him home because they think he's gone mad at the very beginning of his ministry. And... Jesus asks the crowd, he doesn't go with his mother and his brother. He's told, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Well, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. You can imagine this awkward silence. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my, my brother, my sister, and my mother. If you're a Christian, that means Jesus is your brother too. He's God's precious son, the one who God delights in. So what on earth should you do with this passage? I think what we should each do is in our prayers, we should ask God, how do I need, how do I need to listen to you today? God, how do I need to listen to you today? God is more than an email from a distant person you'll never meet. He is God, but he's also close, personal, loving, who knows you. Who knows you. Are we listening to him? Ask God, how 
do I need to listen to you today? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to remember who you are. You're the God of heaven and earth. Your son is eternal, infinite, and is God. Help us to remember that. Help us to want to do what he says and bow down before him as our king because of that. But also, help him not to be distant and remote. Help us to realize if we're believers that he's our brother, but to not let familiarity make us forget who he really is. Help us to know he's God and he's our brother. He cares about us. He wants us to do the right thing. He wants us to follow him and pledge allegiance to him and his values, his ethics, his agenda for our life, whatever that might be. Help that to be made real in our life in a personal and specific way according to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.